Welcome to Olivia Dream Podcast, episode 19. How an elementary school teacher became the New York Times travel writer. I'm your host, Selena Lee. Today, we're talking about traveling, and it made me think about you, my listeners from so many different countries around the world. Even though I haven't been to all the 70 countries where you're listening from, It's like my story is traveling to each of these countries, and that makes me so happy just thinking about it. Hopefully, one day I can visit all the countries, and wouldn't that be amazing? Well, my podcast is all about living our dreams, right? So maybe it will come true. I especially get very excited when I get listeners from countries I normally wouldn't expect to get listeners from. And last summer, when I launched my podcast, In one of the early episodes, I got a download from Mauritania, which is a country in West Africa. And I don't think many of us have even heard of this country. So I got very excited and I looked up、uh, about Mauritania. And, and then I thought, there's no way someone from this country would know about me or know about my podcast. So I thought it was just a random accident someone downloaded my episode. And then every time I release new episodes, the download keeps going up. I think this person must be telling his or her friends about this podcast. And currently, they are now number nine、um, in terms of downloads out of 70 countries where all my listeners are from. So, this is so amazing. And I'm so curious to learn about you and who are you. So, if you are listening from Mauritania, Please send me a message on my website.、Um, it's selinalee.co, C E L I N A L E E.co. And I'm just so thankful that you're listening and, and I just want to say hi. So please send me a message. And of course, if you're listening from any other countries, I would love to hear from you too. So please send me a message. As you know, my podcast is a labor of love, and I'm relying on you to grow this podcast. So, if you got any value from listening to my stories or the interviews I have with all these amazing, inspirational people, I would really appreciate it if you can tell a friend about this podcast. And also, please subscribe on your podcast app. And while you're at it, I would really, really appreciate it if you can just write me a review. I heard that people usually decide to listen to a podcast after it was recommended to them. So, if you can just take a few minutes to write me a review, that would really, really help me to get discovered by new listeners. As some of you know, several years ago, I started a community called Give on Dream to inspire people to pursue their dreams. And one of the initiatives I launched was called Share Your Dream Campaign, where I asked people to write their dreams on a postcard. And I've been sharing them on Instagram and Facebook. If you are interested in learning more about it, you can go to giveonedream.com. That is giveonedream.com. So, over the years, I've received thousands of dreams from people all over the world. And what I've found was so many dreams. I feel like at least a third of the dreams were travel related. I cannot even begin to tell you how many dreams I've received that said, I want to travel around the world. 
So today, I'm so excited to share with you the conversation I had with someone who does exactly that. Travel around the world and get paid for it. Seth Kugel is the travel writer for the New York Times, a job that sounds just too good to be true. He was the New York Times frugal traveler columnist for six years, and he has recently published a book, Rediscovering Travel, A Guide for the Globally Curious. What's really interesting about his background is that he didn't plan on becoming a travel writer or even a journalist. His first job out of college was actually a third grade bilingual teacher in the Bronx in New York City. And then after getting his master's degree, he then worked in an immigrant services project for the city of New York. You'll hear about how a conversation he had with a college friend encouraged him to take a writing class, which then led to him becoming a freelance writer for the New York Times and then a travel writer. He talks about how he turned his hobbies into his job, like learning new languages and traveling. And you'll also hear about the unusual and kind of crazy ways he learned Portuguese and Spanish. Another fun fact about Seth is that he's also a YouTube star. He has two YouTube channels, Globally Curious and Amigo Gringo in Portuguese. Amigo Gringo has almost 500,000 subscribers and he's been on every late night talk show in Brazil. So he's a celebrity there. People recognize him on the street, ask him for autographs, and he has achieved his lifelong dream of becoming famous in another country. Now that's pretty cool. Recently, I went with Seth on a Korean food tour in Queens, New York, because he was writing a story for the New York Times. It was a lot of fun, although we weren't allowed to tell people that he was writing for the New York Times, and some very lucky Korean restaurants are about to be very surprised with a lot of publicity. Okay, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Seth. Hi, Selena. <laughs> so let's get started. Um, how about we first talk about your childhood? Where were you born oh and where God. did you grow up? I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. It was a quite typical suburban American lifestyle. I had a green lawn, and I had my own bedroom, and went to <laughs> summer camp. And like a typical childhood. Played soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and went yeah that was that was pretty it was pretty normal it was a, you know a comfortable uh, comfortable suburban childhood uh, it was cold in the winter because that's Boston now that I know it's not that cold everywhere else and I wonder why we didn't I didn't grow up somewhere else where I could have played soccer all year but so did you have a childhood dream when you were growing up did you have any particular yeah. interest in anything I think I wanted to the, the one profession I remember wanting to be is an archaeologist. What? An archaeologist. How did that come about? Um, I was just fascinated by, you know, probably mummies and pyramids and um, old things. Like the fact that people were running around a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago or whatever and what they were up to. Uh, it's not that different from, I, I was very fascinated by the world. I had a globe in my, you know, one of the spinning globes as a kid and I always used to look and try to find different places and my my sort of I guess my 
sort of door into that when I was a kid was thinking about ancient, the ancient world and what, what happened in Egypt a long time ago or what happened in Mesopotamia or whatever. So I'm just, now I'm just more interested in the, the current world, the contemporary world, not as much, but it's still the same sort of view on the world. Like there's a lot of fascinating stuff out there. So your parents told you about the world and bought you the globe? I don't remember. I mean, I, I assume <laughs> they brought they bought me the globe. You know, my parents are intellectual types. They worked in universities, and um, you know, I you know, I just I don't I don't remember. I assume, you know, I, they bought me books, and I read books, and school got me interested in things. I went to a really good public school, and so. and did they encourage traveling when you were younger? Did yes. they? Did well, you travel with them? once uh, I was ten, we started traveling. My parents used to travel before my brother and I were born. Uh, and then I think they sort of gave up on it for about 10 years uh, while we were kids. And then when we were 10, started traveling again. So I, I did a couple really cool trips when I was a kid. Uh, we traded houses with a family in London wow. for a month. This must be before Airbnb. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> uh, several decades before yes. Airbnb. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say it was two decades before Airbnb. No more i didn't even know that you could do that like 20 30 years yeah. ago yeah. yeah you know what we used back then to do that sort of a thing was paper yes and postage stamps right and you send in your listing it just took a little longer you wanted to trade a house you put it you put a listing in to a company they printed a book and you requested the book you got it and it had a list of everyone's house that was available then you wrote to the person and said do you want to trade houses maybe you talked on the phone uh, and then he traded houses. You know, oh, things wow. did work before computers. Right, of course. And um, But, yeah, so all this stuff existed. I mean, so much of what's around today, Airbnb, Uber, whatever, it's just more efficient ways of doing things that were already invented. Uber didn't invent having someone pick you up in a car and bring you somewhere else. Right. You know, that was like a horse and carriage in, you know, a, 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 in like 16th century England. I don't, I don't know when. But, uh, yeah, so we did that. Um we went on a cruise, uh, and then eventually, maybe because I was interested in archaeology, we actually went to Egypt. That was our big, big trip of, wow. my, of my childhood. Yeah, that was really lucky of me to be have parents that, A, could afford to go on that trip, sure. and B, um, took me on the trip. My parents um, never spent that much. They're very good savers. It's not like, believe me, I might have gone to Egypt, but I was never allowed to order Coke in a restaurant. What? Just had to get tap water. They got their priorities straight. Yep. Yep. I mean, wow. they only spent money on what they thought was really worth it. Mm -hmm. And that was experience and travel and seeing the world and all of that. Yep. Mm, interesting. So I'm sure you get this question all the time. Oh, I would love to be a travel writer. Yeah. Um, but you have this sort of an unusual background where you didn't start your career or first job out of college. It has nothing to do with that, right? So I think you started uh, political science at Yale, then went to become an elementary school teacher for Teach for America in South Bronx, um, bilingual teacher. Then you went to Harvard Kennedy School, then you worked for the city. I mean, that's so different from what you do now. So yeah. Uh, well, it all makes sense when you put it in order. Like, it, everything I did was only one step from the last thing I did. Right. Uh, and if you ask me right now, am I happy to be a travel writer? I'm not so sure the answer would be yes. I'm. I'm travel writing is, uh, it's like any job that 
is perceived as glamorous. Right. It's very interesting from the outside, but from the inside, like I was a journalist writing about, I would say, what I would call real issues, um, immigration issues, sort of city, socioeconomic issues, crime, that sort of thing. And now I write about taking trips places. Right. So the taking of the trips places is obviously incredible, but what I'm trying to figure out now is how to put some more meaning into those articles. And that just depends on what you're able to convince your editors to do. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to be, uh, I wouldn't want to write guidebooks. Yeah. It's not of interest to me. Uh, it's a great job. I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad job. It's actually a very difficult job. Um, I'm not so sure I'd want to be a blogger that's only job was to run around the world and give tips on where to travel and how to do it. Uh, I'm interested in telling stories about travel and telling stories about the world that are in some way a little bit more meaningful. So, um, I didn't, it's not what I wanted to be when I was a kid. Right. Uh, I certainly loved travel. And if you had told me, do you want to be a travel writer? I might've said, sure. But, um, so tell us about the current, the transition. So, yeah. um, right after college, yeah. you take a job as a teacher. So yeah, I was in college. Uh, you know, it was a, I went to Yale. It was a liberal arts college. You didn't like have to, Oh, I'm a studied political science. So now I've got to go be a politician or something right. like that's not the way it works so teacher america was a very popular choice for sure uh, as it still is today uh, to take the chance to take two years and uh, be a teacher in a struggling public school uh, while i was in college i had volunteered at the public schools in new haven connecticut i had also worked as a camp counselor i was really used to working with kids i liked working with kids uh, i liked the idea of working with kids in a low-income community because that's what I had volunteered in in New Haven and I, I found it was uh, really fun and gratifying uh, so I did that um, and I ended up teaching in the South Bronx uh, I spoke a little bit of Spanish I kind of suckered Teacher America into let, giving, letting me try to be a bilingual teacher and then mm -hmm. I studied really hard and ended up passing the test to be a New York City bilingual teacher in Spanish um, so that that makes sense, right? Yeah. Okay. I heard for when you're trying to learn Spanish, I don't know if this is uh, before you became a teacher or after, but you didn't read any English books. You only read Spanish year. books and you only listened to Spanish yeah. radio. You only traveled to places where you yeah. where they would speak Spanish. I mean, that is dedication. Yeah, I did all that. <laughs> That's totally right. I haven't wow. thought about that in a while, but you must have dug it up somewhere. Yes, I told you. Yeah, so for a year, it was when I was, it was from the day I got admitted to to teach for America and they told me you're going to be a bilingual and, and it was scary because you have to pass tests to be a bilingual teacher yeah of course and um I really just dove right into Spanish I listened to a lot of Spanish radio uh, you know radios today I might listen to podcasts or, or whatever um yeah I listened to Spanish radio I, I when I wanted to read a book that was in English I tried to find the Spanish translation there was a great Spanish bookstore in New York on 14th street for many, many years. Uh, now you can pretty much just order it all online, but it was a great, a great place. Uh, Liberia Lectorum was the name. And um, so, yeah, I really dedicated myself to it. And I became quite, the next career step is I became quite interested in the immigration stories of my students. Um, many of them were immigrants. Those that weren't, their parents were immigrants or at least migrants from Puerto Rico. Um, and I would hear just fascinating stories from them and from their parents. And at one point, I got invited to the Dominican Republic by the parents of one of my students who was going to be returning for the first time 
to their home country since immigrating to the United States. And so it was very dramatic. I went with them on their first trip back to their country. Wow. Uh, we got met at the airport by like 30 relatives, oh all gosh. like jumping and screaming and stuff like that. It was uh, it was an amazing experience. Like so many of my travel early travel experiences, it totally influenced the way I travel after that. Like, you know, it's you're probably not going to get greeted at the airport by 30 locals every time you travel, but you, I certainly am not interested in like just going to a hotel and going to the beach anymore because I've tasted, had a taste of what it's like to really participate in the life of a, another country. In any case, so that's how I got interested in immigration. And so I decided to study immigration policy. Mm-hmm. And that's when I went to the Kennedy School of Government at, at Harvard. And I studied immigration policy. So that makes sense. Yeah. I get interested in immigration from teaching immigrants. I studied immigration policy. Then I worked for the city of New York running an immigration services center, which also makes sense. Uh, and then I worked for the city, so I wanted to get a promotion. So I ended up working for the Administration for Children's Services, which uh, is like child welfare, child protection. Um, but about, it was around that time that I started writing. And what did I write about? Well, I'd worked in the Bronx in one way or another for one, two, three, four, five years. Uh, I lived in Washington Heights, which is up in the Dominican neighborhood in northern Manhattan, right next to the Bronx. So not surprisingly, uh, when I took a class and started to get published, I found that what I knew about was the Bronx, and especially uh, Latino communities in the Bronx. And so that's how I got started writing for the New York Times. I, I wasn't qualified to write for the New York Times in any way, except that I had lots of good ideas about stories in the South Bronx, in, in, in the whole Bronx, really, but mostly in the South Bronx. And they, I don't think that they could resist the ideas because no one else was giving them these ideas. Right. So that's how I became a journalist. And then the step from being a journalist to a travel writer is, is not very much. It just took someone, an editor, that liked me to become the travel editor at the New York Times, which so happened about five years later. So it's purely by chance. Well, well, you know, <laughs> you could say the hard, you know, you know the saying: the harder I work, the luckier of course, I get. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I had to I had to be working for the New York Times. I had to be work working really hard to work for a lot of different editors to hustle a lot of different jobs, and I had to impress the editor enough that when he became travel editor, he asked me, where have you been recently? Yeah. And it turned out I had just been to Brazil for the first time uh, learning Portuguese in much the same way I was learning Spanish. I had been listening to the radio over the internet in Portuguese like for a year. So you yeah. started wanting to learn Portuguese because I heard somebody was like, hey, you speak Spanish already. Why don't you learn Portuguese? You're yeah. like, okay, sure. That sounds funny to people, <laughs> but, but those of us... Now, if you're out there and you speak Spanish and Portuguese, you probably did the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, in the United States, hardly anyone speaks Portuguese. But if you go to Brazil and talk to every American journalist down there or musician or whatever, they will 99% of them learned Spanish first, went to Brazil, and just picked up Portuguese because it's very similar. Like, it doesn't sound the same. So it is hard to get used to the pronunciation. But... You know, it's pretty similar. And I had a friend who was trilingual. He worked for Toyota, uh, spoke 
Spanish and Portuguese at work because he covered Latin American markets. And he's like, you just got to learn Portuguese, Seth. Brazil's a huge country. It's over 200 million people. You already uh, study Latin America and work with Latin America. It would be really good for you. And I took it as a challenge and I did it. And, and so a year later, I was on a boat down the Amazon River with like 100 Brazilians. We're all sleeping in hammocks and I'm improving my Portuguese by speaking <laughs> to them every every day. And that's what my first travel story was about. I, I think that story was so interesting. I heard you were planning a trip to Brazil. You're reading a guidebook yeah. at a cafe and some yeah. random person comes up to you and... Yeah. It's like, hey, I know the best way to learn Portuguese. Yeah, well, yeah, he came up to me and said, are you planning to go to Brazil? It was a Belgian guy, and oh. it was in the South Bronx, by the way. Interesting. Just, just to add a little texture. I was at lunch. I was having lunch while I was working on a story. I took a break. This guy had like, I think he had like a furniture factory. He ran a furniture factory in the South Bronx. Anyway, he's a young guy. And he asked me, yeah, w why do you want to go to Brazil? And I said, because I want to improve my Portuguese. And then he's the one that gave me the idea of isolating myself on a boat for four days <laughs> with a bunch of people who didn't speak English. And it was a very, very, very effective uh, way to learn Portuguese, but also a great way to travel. Like, you know, it's actually not that different from being surrounded by 30 relatives That's screaming right. at the airport. Uh, you, you begin to see a pattern in the kind of travel that I do. It's stuff that's much harder to do and not and harder to figure out how to do, um, but is at the in the end almost always worth it. Yeah, I think it's also interesting how you decided to be a writer because um, so back up a little sure. bit when you're looking when you're working for the city I think at the time and you're like oh talking to a friend I. And she said, oh, hey, you used to be a good writer in college. What do you, don't you try that, right? Yes, I should say a Korean-American friend. Just really? FYI. Wow, nice. <laughs> um, yeah, we, I was complaining about work in mm -hmm. a bar yeah. to my friend. Which we all do, of course. Yeah. Uh, to friends. And yeah, so she, and she really said, why don't you take a class uh, to be a writer? And uh, that's how I met the famous Susan Shapiro, who mm -hmm. taught and still teaches the class that got me published in the New York Times. So she may not even remember telling you that, or she may, may not, right? Well, she remembers because I, I reminded her of it. And I think it's in the um, acknowledgments of my book. Mm -hmm. So if she didn't remember, she does remember now. I think <laughs> she remembers. I mean, she might not specifically remember, but that but she remembers us going to that bar and talking about careers I, I'm pretty sure all right so what somebody tells us may make a big difference in our lives without that that person realizing or when what we say to other people yeah. um, might push them into a different direction without even realizing right so yeah like you could be listening to a podcast about what to do with your career and you might right. hear some great advice <laughs> like right like right now yeah, like right now <laughs> but your friends yeah you know it just I think one of the big problems with people's careers is that they get stuck in a certain job and they're scared to try to do something new and really and that was me also like I very uh, suffer from inertia like everybody else but something as easy as taking a class once a week yeah that's not a big ask like uh, to try to do something different right you know uh, if you don't have time to take a class about something you're interested in. I mean, maybe it's a wine tasting class and then you end up being a sommelier or something like that. Sure. Or whatever it is. So 
just finding the time to make sure you're not totally obsessed with your your work so that you can explore other avenues. The best thing is when a when a hobby turns into your job. Absolutely. And that was certainly the case for you, right? It was definitely the case for me. I mean, you could you could look at it in a million ways. Learning languages was a hobby for me. That turned into a job. Traveling was a hobby for me. That turned into a job. Um, interacting with people from other countries, wh- wh- whatever you, you, you want to do. Uh, oh, now, like making little videotapes, whatever, like I did when I was a kid. Now I have a YouTube channel. That's right. Um, so. Wait, so I think that would be something that a lot of people lo- would love to do. How do you turn a hobby into a job? How do you do that? Uh, well... Um, First of all, you have to figure out whether it is viable. Right. You know, if you, um, I don't know, well, pretty much any hobby probably is related to a job in, in some way. But you have to, so you have to figure out what that path is because it's not always that obvious. Right. Um, certainly, I didn't expect like being really interested in the world would lead me to be interested in immigration, which is what brings the world to New York City. That's right. So that's one example there. So you have to think about what the different ways to involve your hobby in a job are, because it's not immediately going to be obvious. Um, You know, if you collect, if you love earrings or something like collect earrings, it doesn't mean you're going to be a jeweler or designer or maybe you're running running a store. I mean, who knows? There's a million different ways to do it. And then to figure out a way to just sort of, you know what I think is really not that possible, and I think a lot of people talk about it, is just absolutely giving up, throwing away your job, quitting your job, and just trying something completely new. I, I don't buy that that's the way that most people do this because I don't think most people can afford to do this. Right. Uh, it really drives me nuts when I'll see a blogger or an Instagram personality or something who says, oh, I just gave up my job and decided to travel the world. Yeah. Well, for 98% <laughs> of human beings, that's just not financially viable. Of course. You know, either you have people who are depending on you or you don't make enough money or uh, you can't tr- leave for some reason, so it's it's not it's not viable. I did it little by little by little. Like yeah. I started freelance writing, really on the side. I took yeah. the class, right, and then I got published, and then I kept doing it for two years. Yeah, and before I, remember, I quit my job, I remember the one of the first articles you wrote for the New York Times is crazy things you can buy in the, in the internet. And that was the first one. <laughs> yeah, that was before I even realized that I had this valuable knowledge about the Bronx. At that point, I was just imitating stuff I used to write in high school and college, like a quirky, you know, that was like the beginning of internet shopping. It was 1998. Christmas wow. 1998. So this is when people weren't buying things on the internet. Some people did, mm-hmm. but it was scary because right. there wasn't security. You, you, you typed in your, you, the equivalent of sending your credit card number in an email, essentially. So you really had to trust it. You had no way of knowing whether the thing was going to arrive or not. Right, you had there was no protections. It was really crazy, uh, and so my idea was, I started fishing around and realized you can buy a lot of really weird stuff on the internet. Which, of course, today, that's like the definition of the internet. Yeah. But back then, people who were like, "Well, should I buy a book on the internet?" I was like, "No, you should buy ten thousand pounds of cayenne pepper on the internet." <laughs> You should buy a pre-written speech for a dentist convention. You know, these are things that I found online, and that became that became that article. Interesting. Then you, I think, wrote a few more articles for the city section, and then, like we talked about earlier, yeah. the editor you knew 
started being um, editor for the travel section. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a little more complicated than mm-hmm. that. He he wasn't the editor at the at the city section, so I mm-hmm. started writing for the city section, uh, and then I actually um, that's when I finally managed to quit my job when they said I could write about the Bronx as kind of you know I, I I'm not a staff reporter at the times. So I've always been a freelancer, but they have these regular freelancers, you know, like a perma lancer or whatever you want to call it, and I got to cover the Bronx. Uh, and the thing is, though, I didn't get paid enough to just cover the Bronx. So I scrambled and tried to write for as many parts of the Times as I could, as well as other magazines. But once you're inside of an organization, it's just easier to find other stuff to write. So, yeah, so the guy that became the travel editor was actually, he edited a column about vacation homes for another section of the paper. And I would interview people about their vacation homes. It was the weirdest gig ever. Uh, so there'd be a theme like, okay, A-frame houses or houses with boat houses attached or houses on a mountain. And then I have to find somebody interesting somewhere in the United States who owned a house that fit that description that was their second home. And not even just that, but they had to be able to go there to take a picture at their home in the next few weeks. Like in other words, if it was the middle of the winter and someone had a beach house, that wasn't going to work. Wait, so how do you find these people? Well, that was an interesting <laughs> question. Uh, a lot of what I did was I, I went through uh, realtors. Interesting. Uh, who know who lives in what houses. It wasn't necessarily someone they had sold the house to. But the funny thing, it was such a job. I was like toiling, toiling in obscurity because I was sure nobody read this part. Of course, it's the New York Times, so some people wrote, read it. But I sort of was convinced nobody really read it, and I was just doing it for the money. But I worked really hard at it. Because that's just the way I am. It's like I'm, I'm just a like a perfectionist. Which, by the way, is good advice. Don't be a perfectionist. Oh yeah. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, because I'm writing these stories until like three in the morning or oh something my gosh. like that. But but uh, so the funny story there is that in the middle of all this, before I became a travel writer, I got a call from someone. You know, I'm thinking nobody is interested in this stuff. It's someone from Second Homes Magazine, and they want to interview me about how I find the homes, just like you just asked. What? Because it's like so bizarre. Like, how do you even find these people, right? Right, right. Well, and the funny thing is, there was a magazine all about second homes. I had no idea. Apparently, read this column every week. Wow. And they're like, how does that guy find these people? We're going to call him. I'm like, wow, somebody that wants to. (laughs) I mean, now I do a lot of interviews about stuff in my career, but then nobody wanted to know anything about me <laughs> and here's someone wanting to know how i toiled away at this so you know it's possible more people are paying attention to your job than you think even if you think for nobody sure is. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's super interesting so then you're doing that and then um you started i think writing about traveling in new york so you're this travel writer not traveling. Yeah. You're writing about New York. You're taking all my best lines. <laughs> yeah, I was the travel writer that didn't travel. I told you I did a lot of research. Yeah. Um, I, well, this is actually a very good career story. So um, I was writing occasionally about travel. I was, it was not my job yet. I was mostly still writing about the city. Um, and uh, the editor said, hey, we're thinking about starting a new column uh, about what's going on in New York eight weeks from now. And the idea was that people in the travel section don't live in New York, 
they would figure out what when they should go to New York based on this column saying what's going on there in a couple months. And I sort of thought to myself, that is a horrible idea. Like, I just couldn't imagine it. And I'm like, I, I got to think of something better. So I actually thought of this concept for the column. This is just over the weekend or whatever after I had this conversation. And I thought it would be, New York City has such a million, there's a million different angles and ways that you could slice up New York City, slice up the Big Apple, so to speak. Yes. Uh, and wouldn't it be cool if every week we wrote about just a specific way to a specific cross section of New York City? So it could be small parks or um, Thai community things or, you know, or whatever, unknown museums. Uh, and I actually put together a proposal for this column. Un he didn't ask for it. And I said, this is what I think the column should be. I don't think this is a, that's a great idea. And he said, oh, I like that idea. Let me talk to my boss. And then he came back to me and he said, do you think you could write it 52 weeks a year? I mean, do you have the time to do that? You know, do you have the time to be a columnist for the New York Times? Yes. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I created a column. Wow. And the way I created it was I heard someone have an idea that I thought was not a good idea. Mm -hmm. And I aggressively said, I think I have a better idea. But I did it in the form of a written proposal. Right. So you created an opportunity for yourself. Right. Wow. And in mm -hmm. a way, that was my first high-profile job at the I New York see. Times. Because, you know, when you write for a newspaper or for anything these days... You know, your name is on it, but nobody really looks at who wrote it. Nobody really looks at the name of who wrote it. It's when you start being able to express some of your personality and you have a column or you have a video series or something like that, that your name begins to become a little bit known. Yeah. You did that for a while and then you started to do more travel writing. I think you became a frugal travel writer. Well, there was a piece in between there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, as I've already sort of alluded to here, I, I wasn't too into writing this column after a little while because even though it sounds like great fun like what you should do in new york if you compare that to what i was writing about before right which was like, like struggling immigrant communities mm -hmm. i was like is this really what i'm meant to be doing uh so and i had always wanted to live abroad and i had never lived abroad even though i had traveled a lot so and i was studying portuguese that's so right. uh, i moved to brazil i wow. moved to brazil for two years for two years i thought i was going to move for longer um, and I was a correspondent for a new um, news agency called Global Post, which was based in Boston. And the idea of it was to bring foreign news to Americans. So foreign news written for Americans with specific angles that Americans would be interested in. Uh, it's now still exists. It's a part of Public Radio International now. Uh, but I got to be their Brazil correspondent. Uh, which is amazing because I could never have been a foreign correspondent for the New York Times. It's just too prestigious of a job. And I, that wasn't my career path. If you're going to do that, you have to write about business and then write about police and then write about whatever and work your way up. So, yeah, so I got to live and really improve my Portuguese and had the experience of living in another country, which is incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, most people do not imagine how difficult it is to get used to the systems of another country. It's not so much about the food or about the language. It's about how to get things done. Yeah. How for to sure. rent an apartment. Yeah. How to, you know, where who's gonna fix your 
computer if oh, it yeah. breaks. That's like, a big one for me. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, and you, who to trust? Who to trust is a huge one because all the signals, everything we learn living in the United States throughout our life's, ex- life's experience, we figure out when we can trust people and when we can't. We're not always right. Right. But we're kind of right. Like you go into a repair shop and you just get the sense that something's wrong there. And so you take your computer to another place. Uh, when you move to another country, all bets are off. That's you don't, right. You don't know the signals anymore. So it was a great experience. Uh, but after two years, the same editor came back to me and offered me the frugal traveler columnist for the Times. Wow. So I left. Mm-hmm. So what was the first story you wrote about for frugal traveler? First story I wrote about is how I almost lost my passport on my first trip as Frugal Traveler. What? (laughs) Yes. Uh, I left it uh, in the airport bathroom. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, It was not for my first trip as Frugal Traveler. It was for a trip I was taking before that. But if I had lost my passport, it would have taken forever. I was in Brazil. It would have taken forever to get a new passport, and I probably would have missed my debut trip. So miraculously... Uh, at the Sao Paulo airport, Guarulhos airport, um, someone turned it into the lost and found. Wow. And I got it right back. But that That's doesn't happen amazing. very often. That's amazing, yeah. People like American passports. They'll probably steal it steal and think it. it's valuable for some reason. I don't know if it is, but uh, so that was my first story. I, I tended to write a lot about how things went wrong on my travels. It's kind of one of my themes about writing about travel is to not pretend that travel is this amazing, incredible, 100% joyous experience. Right. But that And it never is, really. It never is. <laughs> but but we, if, people want to pretend like it is. Well, and there's a reason, <laughs> because if you watch travel shows on TV or read glossy magazines about travel... That's pretty much what you get. For sure. And if so if you're a writer or if you're a TV host and you go, things go wrong, but you don't show that. So I was always sort of uh, almost, um, oh, yeah, I guess I just wanted to be sure people didn't have the wrong idea about travel. And I didn't, I don't mind making fun of myself. So I would often write about various mistakes that I made when traveling. Yeah. And I think people appreciated that. I think we all kind of know that mm-hmm. travel is hard. Um, and so we recognize it when we read it, but we still like to just, you know, watch Anthony Bourdain reruns or oh, yes. uh, look at beautiful picture pictorials in, in magazines like Condé Nast and Traveler or whatever. So how do you um, write a column uh, for the frugal traveler. So do you pitch like, hey, I think I want to go to Brazil and, you know, can I do a story there? And you like plan yeah. out the whole itinerary and like... Yeah. Well, I did it for five and a half years, and it was different at the beginning than it was at the end. So at the beginning, um, yeah, pretty much you had to give your ideas to the editor and negotiate back and forth, and um, there was a lot of rejections and, you know, that sort of thing as we got to know each other. But once I figured out what the column was about, once I figured out what they wanted, you end up... Yeah, you give them ideas, or sometimes they give you ideas, but usually you give them ideas. You have to justify it. Why is this going to be an interesting story? You can't just say, I want to go to to Vietnam. That's just not how it works. You have to say, this is the specific angle I'm working. So, for example, uh, I really wanted to go to – of course, what you really want to do is go to Vietnam. So (laughs) I, I wanted to go to Africa. I hadn't done any stories on the entire continent of Africa during my stint 
Um, and I'm like, but how am I going to get them? So there's a lot of things I wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to see like the country of Swaziland, which actually I think has a different name, like like Swaz something or other. But this tiny little country in South and surrounded by South Africa and Mozambique, and and I wanted to go to Mozambique as a Portuguese speaking country. I'm like, they're not going to just let me go to these crazy places. So my idea was, I'm going to figure out how to do the cheapest possible safari. Wow. And I didn't even know if it was possible to do. To me, and I think to most people, when you think about going, quote unquote, on safari, which is not what they call it there, but um, you think you're going to have to hire a tour company that's going to bring you and take you in a van and have a guide and set up like tents for you or, 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 or like luxurious tents or going to have you staying in some luxurious lodge. And I quickly found out that you could actually do it by yourself, more or less by yourself. And the way I did that is I asked some South Africans. I asked a friend right. who, who had lived in, in Africa and he said, yeah, just do what the South Africans do. And what they do is essentially take a camping trip. They load a tent into their car and they drive to Kruger National Park or whatever, set up there's campsites there. They're protected by electric fences. So there's no like lion is going to eat you. <laughs> That's a good uh, idea. And then you drive your own car through the game park. So you have to pay to get into the park. You have to pay to use the campsite. But I think I determined that a couple could do it for $125 a day. So two people, wow. $125 a day. You compare that to what a big company. Anyway, so the yeah, point is. It costs a fortune. That's what I heard. Right. Mm -hmm. So the point is that I came up with this idea. And that, I think, was irresistible to the editors. Where, where, so I had to come up with an original idea. And it turned out to be a really... Uh, I think really good story. Uh, the it's still up online. I think it's called DIY Safari or something like that. And um, so that's kind of how it worked. But then I got to do all the other trips around it because once you're in Africa. So I went to Swaziland. Nice. I went to Mozambique. Uh, I went to. Um, I really wanted to go to Cape Town. Yeah. In South Africa, everyone loves Cape Town, but my editors are like, eh, too many stories about Cape Town recently. Sure. So I instead went to Durban which is kind of like a poor man's Cape Town. It's a coastal city that's cheaper. Uh, and so it's funny, what I found is now there's a lot of really, like I have never been to Cape Town. It's one of the, it's probably the top city tourist attraction in, in South Africa, and yet I've never been there. This is true of a lot of things. I had never been to Lisbon, even though I did a bunch of stories on Portugal. Interesting. Just too much is written about Lisbon. So I filled in some of those gaps since then, but I would always, I'd been to a lot of weird places, but I had not been to a lot of really mainstream places. Famous, popular. But that's how the job worked more or less. It, it was a back and forth. The, my editors were, oh, I got lucky, I guess, because just extremely friendly and uh, helpful people. And so we did it. They didn't always take my ideas and they didn't always give me as much money as I wanted, but um, yeah, it was a collaborative effort. So is everything you see in a publication, a major publication. I mean, the editors are involved as much as the writers to a certain extent. Yeah. So how do you define frugal traveler? Frugal. Uh, yeah. Um, there's no number attached to it because mm -hmm. if there were like $50 a day, right. uh, that would vary so much by country. Oh, absolutely. That it wouldn't even mm -hmm. be worth anything. So mm -hmm. to me, a frugal traveler is someone who only spends money when it's really worth it. Got okay. it. So what do I mean by really worth it? 
Like I need uh, the hotel I stay in to have a lock on the door, to have a clean bed, um, and to be well located. Yeah, you know, that's I important. Do, I don't need a good breakfast. I don't need a spa. I don't need a, it to be a brand name. I don't need to make any points f- from staying there. So that's sort of my opinion. Everyone has their own little opinion about that. What do I need from food? Well, I don't need to go to a Michelin-starred restaurant, but I do need to have the food be local mm-hmm. and delicious. Uh, so um, I didn't go to fancy. I don't go to fancy restaurants. However, that said, if once in a trip there's a restaurant that's going to cost me more. I used to think like I shouldn't spend more than $10 on a meal no matter what anywhere. But then like you're in Paris and, and, a, and a place has a deal for like $17 lunch and it's a nice restaurant. That's frugal yeah. to go to that thing. Right. I mean, so uh, I didn't spend a lot of money. I, I think a lot of people, especially, you know, I, I did the frugal traveler in my 40s, right? So... A lot of people don't want to be uncomfortable in their place. <laughs> That's true, right? Um, and I was pretty uncomfortable. I took a lot of buses yeah. instead of planes. But I wouldn't take the lowest class bus because I, I didn't want to put myself in danger. I wanted to take a bus company that I could trust, that they had mechanics, that the bus wouldn't fall off a cliff. So it's just a balance. I think that people think that traveling is all about spending money on services and experiences, but really it's you can have a lot of those experiences on your own. You don't need a lot of the luxuries. Uh, and I was sort of out to prove that. I had a column I do once in a while, a series called $100 Weekend, mm-hmm. where I go to a major city with a $100 budget from Friday afternoon till Sunday afternoon, two days, including lodging. What? So, well, I had to find a, basically a free place to stay. Right. Sometimes it was easy because I had a friend living there. And I, I, again, I'm just being myself. Yeah. So if I have a friend living there, I'm not going to stay in a hotel. Well, this is me. I'm traveling right. and I have a friend in London, so I'm going to stay. Uh, but even $100 a day without, um, not $100 a day, $100 for the weekend is not that much in a major city. I did yeah, it in New York. Course. I did it in Chicago. I did it in London. Uh, I did it in Hong Kong. Um, and it forces you to find the awesome free stuff and the awesome cheap eats and stuff like that. And I think that because most of us travel with a higher budget than that, unless we're backpackers or whatever, and we're out for like weeks and months, uh, that forces you to find, yeah, it forces you to find the good stuff. And many of us would not even dare to go uh, of course, street food is very fashionable now, but not every country has like glamorous street markets or like the right. night markets in Asia or whatever. Sometimes you really have to struggle to find the cheap food, but often it can be worth the struggle. For sure. So um, you did also the 36-hour yeah, um, travel column for the New York Times, and that one a lot of people followed what you've suggested, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, the 36 hours, yeah. I did. I did the... I did some. I mean, it's written a different every week. There's a different city with a 36-hour itinerary, and they're done by different people. Mm-hmm. So I still do them. Um, I mostly do the ones in Brazil. I've done, uh, or sometimes I do New York sections of New York. I did a Harlem one once. Uh, I did downtown in New York. Uh, I did Queens. Um, so yeah, people really do follow those. That's a whole different. Yeah, that's a whole different ball game. Though, then you're not yourself. You don't write the 36 hours columns in the first person. Interesting. Uh, when that's I write right. stuff in yeah. the first person, if someone says to me, "Well, I can't believe you didn't go to this, you know, 
X restaurant, I'd be like, oh, well, I don't like the, I don't like that kind of food. And they'll be like, but you're writing for the New York Times. You need to go. No, I'm writing a column. I'm going to go to the things I want to do. But when you're writing 36 hours, then really you are sort of saying this is the best of the city. So then you really, it takes a lot of research. You have to, and then decision making is almost impossible. Um, So you try to, uh, you know, you have to set up a 36-hour itinerary. It's really, again, it's really kind of Friday afternoon to Sunday afternoon. It's really more like 48 hours. But you um, have to do it for much more than 48 hours. You know, I usually would do it for about four days, so about double the time. But I'd also eat more than three meals a day to make sure that I... So then after having all these experiences, uh, then I'd narrow it down. And the idea is to do some expensive, some cheap, but to show as many sides of the city as you can for someone who's maybe there for the first time. And also try to add... I always try to add a discovery or two that even people who live there might not know about wow. uh, that's a really fun exercise it's it's much harder than it looks and I, they don't necessarily all come out well not i don't think everyone succeeds and sometimes i don't succeed because it's so hard but when you do do it right and when someone who's from the city says well that's a perfect itinerary for a first time visitor then you you feel really good about it but then again there are people who be like again i can't believe you didn't go to this place what's great is when you actually did go and you rejected it for some reason <laughs> and you say to them, well i did go but the service was terrible or i did go but they didn't let me in the bouncer didn't let me in oh that, no oh, that happens <laughs> that definitely happens um and, you know, we travel anonymously, so we can't say, oh, well, excuse me, but I work for the New York Times. Right, right. You're we, not allowed to leave. do that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So how do you find these, some of the good places, the cheap places that if you're not even from there? Well, let's remember, I mean, mm-hmm. it used to be it used to be that you really had to do what I'm about to tell you. I right. do. But now, I mean, essentially ev- everything's documented. That's true. It's not like there's a mm-hmm. restaurant in New York that hasn't been written about on some blog or mm-hmm. at the very least on Yelp or something like that. But the question is, then you have thousands. How do you find the right one? Right so, now there's too so there's many no, to choose there's from. There's no real secrets anymore mm-hmm. about like the existence of a place. The, what you have to do is figure out what's really worth it because if a hundred or a thousand or 10,000 people go after you, they better have the experience that you told them that they're going to have. So, I mean, it basically revolves around finding people in the city whose taste you trust. It's like any kind of journalism, really. You need the right sources. Right. So um, it's much harder in a country. I've done 36 hours. I did one in Oxford, England once. Oh, I did a study abroad there when oh, I was you in did? college. Well, yeah. Too bad I didn't talk to you. Before <laughs> so that's a little harder. Mm-hmm. Then I'm, I don't have any friends there. Mm-hmm. So then I'm looking, who do I know in London who might know somebody in Oxford? Or can I find a blogger who writes about food but who's based in Oxford? Or can I talk to somebody at the university who is not going to be like trying to just tell me what I want to hear and give me the truth? So you, f- you sort of look around and talk to one person and they lead you to another person and you come up with this massive list of, of things you might want to try. And then from there, well, then you can read about the places online and see if they sound like what the person said they sound like, uh, and then you put it together. It's much, much easier mm-hmm. when I do Sao Paulo in Brazil, which right, I've done three times. The place where, so well. well, I don't necessarily know, but I know exactly who I can trust because mm-hmm. I have so many friends and contacts down there. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, 
one thing that's easy to do is to just get in touch with a local restaurant critic, for example. But in Sao Paulo, I know which restaurant critic I, t- I trust. Right. So I don't right. even have to like think about which one of these guys I want to talk to. Right. Speaking of Brazil, you are a celebrity there. <laughs> Thank you, have, you. You have this Thank YouTube you. channel yes. called Amigo Gringo. You also have an English YouTube channel called Globally Curious. Well, sort of. Um, sort of, yes. Well, you, which you started. I think that's more of a recent thing. Yeah. But Amigo Gringo, you have, I think, almost 500,000 subscribers and you are recognized on the street um you've been on i think all the late night television shows that's pretty much true so that's pretty cool it's pretty weird (laughs) it's pretty weird uh yeah i long ago had this idea that i wanted to be famous in another country wow because it's horrible to be famous in your own home in your own home city because you you just don't you want to be able to walk outside without having to like you know, get well dressed or like comb your hair. Or something like that. <laughs> right. So, so when I'm in Brazil, I always know when I walk out on the street that somebody might recognize me and ask to take a selfie with me and then post it on their social media. Wow. Um, it, it, I'm not. I'm not. I, I consider myself a very minor celebrity. So, like a uh, uh, R list celebrity. Like I'm not even an <laughs> A, B, or C list celebrity. But I do get recognized. Not 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 all. How the does time, how does it second. make you feel? You're like, oh my god, I'm famous. Well, at first it was uh, really fun because um, it was a sign that we were successful. Yeah, because we can you can look at how many views your YouTube video got, but you don't really know what that means, right? Because our videos, if the really good ones get a hundred thousand views, well, that's not that many in a country of two hundred million people. So you don't really necessarily think, and you also don't know if people are going to remember you or recognize your face. So at first, it's like a sign of success, and it's fun. Uh, yeah, it's, it's still fun for fun. me. Mm-hmm. It's still fun because I, it doesn't happen as often as it would if I were if I had millions of followers. So the people with millions of followers can't even really walk around without wow. being stopped all the time. For me, it's just sort of a thing that happens occasionally. Um, you know, in a restaurant, someone will come over or it's it, the only time it's ever really uncomfortable. Like, for example, I was late for a radio interview and somebody wanted to, I was sort of jogging down the street because the radio, it's on live. I, I couldn't be late. And they sort of stopped me and they really wanted to take a picture with me. And I did it, but I was really rushed. So I felt a little bit bad. Got it. I see. Um, I see. It's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about the show. So it's for Portuguese speaking um, people primarily probably from Brazil, um, yeah. wanting to visit New York. So you Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, that was the original premise. It's spread mm-hmm. a little bit since then. I mean, that's still what we say it is. Uh, and so I don't just, I talk about what to do in New York, but I also talk about how to act in New York. And those are the videos that really became the most famous. Like, how do you not be, how do you not be the dumb tourist who makes <laughs> all kinds of cultural faux pas? Trying to train people and like what it's like to be a New Yorker, the way to interact with New Yorkers and more generally with Americans. I mean, New Yorkers are not like other Americans, but they're more like other Americans than they are like Brazilian people. Of course. So there's just certain ways things work. We did a series on flirting and dating. Interesting. Yeah, that was extremely popular. There's just some major differences in the way these things so work. In these are countries. like the Brazilian people wanted to maybe date or flirt or go out with someone from New York. Sure, because there's a ton of Brazilians who come here, even on vacation, if they're single. Of course, you never you might want you want to have fun and meet people. Uh, and then there's tons of people here studying, doing a semester abroad or doing an exchange program. 
and they are consistently mystified by the behavior of American men and women on the dating scene. I mean, wow. I can just give you a very quick example. Mm -hmm. This is from before I did Amigo Gringo. This is for an interview I, I did in the New York Times, but I've heard this story now so many times. Uh, you're at a party, you're a Brazilian woman, uh, an American man comes to talk to you. You guys sit down together, you talk. At the end, he asks for your phone number and then uh, he leaves. And then the Brazilian woman would be like, I can't believe he didn't like me. Why didn't he like me? <laughs> well, to me, I'm like, it's obvious he liked he you. That's you. exactly what I would do. Uh, I, you know, and, and the Brazilian woman would be like, well, why didn't he kiss me? <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, and so you talk about, like, in Brazil, it's, it's not quite as big of a deal to kiss someone as it is here. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but um, it's, it's almost like getting someone's number. Wow. So in, so, wait, so in Brazil, it, in the same scenario, a man meets a woman that he's interested in, then he'll just kiss her that night? Nothing is 100%, <laughs> of course. Well, it, ha it happens here too, you know, but not as common. Right? That's exactly right. It's not 100% right. that it happens there, and it's not 0% that it happens here. Right. It's just the, what you expect to happen. Exactly is not that especially i mean it's one thing if you're in a club or something like oh, that or yeah. if you're like it's 3 a.m and you're in a bar i mean that's but we're talking about like mainstream 10 p.m well-lit area right okay um the other thing is brazilians just don't i call it the um get a room culture like <laughs> uh this public displays of affection are, are just much more common there. They're just sort of more comfortable with everything sexual. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying they're having sex on the streets. That's, well, during carnival they are. But uh, I'm saying that they, kissing in public is just very, very accepted. It's, and, and I'm talking about like really kissing. Yeah. And so it's, it wouldn't be even unusual. And of course, Brazilians, if any Brazilians listen to this, they'll want to kill me for saying this. It's not everyone. But when you're younger in Brazil, it's certainly very acceptable to say, be at a party and kiss four different people. Wow. At, at the party. Uh, I have a friend who will remain <laughs> nameless, who when I lived in Brazil, he, um, we went to a bar and we met these two women and I was like, great, one for him, one for me. Nope, he ended up making out with both of them. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh no. No big deal. No big deal. Uh, it's just not, it's just, I would, I like to say that kissing is devalued. I so in see. other words, it's just so it's like it's not no so deal. special then. That's right. Uh, I have to tell you a story. When I was in high school, I did I don't know I participated in just like some student ambassador program where they would take high school students to um, to France, Germany, and England. And in Germany, we did um, it was a small town did a, a homestay. Of course, you know I, I was I sort of grew up in Korea, so you know culturally I was like raised to be much more conservative. And when we came to the U.S. when I was in middle school, I was born in L.A., but went back to Korea and came back. Yeah. Um, I was shocked at how the students would like kiss and make out like during like break time. And uh, I was like super <laughs> interested. I was, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is like happening. Right. It's like you but were it, watching a porn. I mean, yeah. I mean, that was how it felt like because you don't do that at a school in Korea. But when I was in Germany, it was a group of American students, right? And now uh, we're in Germany and yeah. it's in German school. And now I'm part of the American high school students. So and you're just like making out with everyone. <laughs> well, I was watching. <laughs> but it was really interesting because we, we were having like classrooms or some big um, public auditorium, like maybe like the high school principals giving a talk or something. Then there are German students just like making out 
like literally in the middle of the speech and nobody looks at them and nobody cares. Mm. And I remember all the American students were so shocked because that is like at a different level. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's like yeah. surprising how, you know, people think about. Um, well, it's kind of like what I said before, like when you move to another country, there's all these things you expect some things to be different. Yeah. But what really is hard is the things you didn't even imagine could be different. Right. And they are different, and you have to get adjusted. And that's what my channel tries to do. I we see. do. One, we did one on house guests. Mm. When you go stay at somebody's house in the United States, you should bring them a present. Right. Uh, when you enter the door, you don't have to say, excuse me, when they open the door before you walk in. In Brazil, you would always get to somebody's house, knock on the door, they say, come on in, and you say, excuse me, and you go in. Interesting. Now, here it just sounds absurd. Right. So we tell them, you don't have to say that. Wow. Just little things like that. And we mm. also do, we do, now we do lots of silly stuff. I mm -hmm. Sometimes I talk about, explain, I even like tried to explain like the healthcare system and stuff. Mm -hmm. And you are quite entertaining on these videos. I've seen you wearing diapers walking down on the street at yeah, a carnival. True. and. Um, selling pizza in your speedos. <laughs> yeah, well, the, okay, well, this is deserves a, a little bit of an explanation because mm -hmm. this is not seen as very dignified for a writer, especially like for the New York Times. But um, there is there's sort of an ongoing joke on our channel about uh, Brazilian bathing suits. Brazilian bathing suits are very skimpy for men and for women. Really yep. interesting. So, mm -hmm. well, one thing about Brazilian female bathing suits, which I, I'm a little bit more interested in than I am with male <laughs> bathing suits, um, is just how much of your buttocks is revealed. Wow. So I would say in my scientific study, I would say it's very rare for more than 25% of the square footage of the female buttocks to be covered. In, wow. a, in other words, it's just like a very small triangle. It's just, it's just almost not a private part, if you will. <laughs> so, um, in any case, uh, I made a joke about Brazilian men's bathing suits, which are kind of like speedos. The word for them is sunga. Um, they're kind of more square than speedos. Speedos are a little bit more like triangular, I guess. But, but so at one point, I was wearing secretly a sunga under my clothes <laughs> and we had put the camera so that you couldn't see what was below my shirt and at one point I flip up my shirt and I'm wearing a sunga and it fit the narrative but weirdly enough that was towards the beginning of the channel and someone they got a screenshot of that and they put it on the homepage of one of the biggest newspapers in Brazil what? for the article about me oh my gosh <laughs> so the idea that I wore a sunga in the show even though I only did it once became an ongoing thing and people would write in in youtube people just write in they're like when are you gonna wear the sunga again <laughs> so we turned it into an ongoing ongoing joke and no wonder you're so famous there's a few there's a few weird things about we also have this phrase that we use which basically means uh what's your what's your policy on swearing on your podcast am i allowed oh, to say yeah that? yeah so it basically means like that fucking asshole or something <laughs> like that but we use that to describe dumb tourists and that phrase which is pretty pretty strong became our sort of slogan like everyone's always calling everyone that interesting and that sort of offends people so there's there's all kinds of weird little we've sort of invented a, a world where things work a little bit differently mm -hmm. uh and sometimes it can be embarrassing but i'm pretty sure that people at the new york times have seen these videos and i they think that they in a way it, it, admire them like the mm -hmm. fact that i'm able to operate in a 
different medium in a different country. Um, it's it's hard to criticize exactly. Right. Um, it's weird, mm-hmm. and it might be a complete waste of my time. <laughs> but it's 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 interesting. Yeah. You have a new book book out called Rediscovering Travel, and yes. it's so interesting the way that you approach travel. I know you have mixed views about how to use technology. Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell us about that. Basically, uh, when I was doing the Frugal Traveler column, I observed even more. Remember, I said that like just writing about tips about a place is not really exciting to me. Right. It was very interesting to me to watch other people travel. Yeah. Like to see how other people act. Because I've just grown up in this, oh, you got to meet people, you got to have an experience with families and go to people's houses and, mm-hmm. and sort of experience real life. Right. Uh, and that's not easy for everyone. I've learned how to do it since I was a kid. Yeah. But it's and not easy. I thought it was interesting that you write that it's actually still not easy for you to talk to random strangers. Yeah. So, what are some tips to be able to talk to strangers yeah. and locals um, sure. during travels? Well, I mean, just 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 to go back just for a second. To, so, so the idea of the book is to try to uh, help people be better travelers and have more uh, real life experiences, uh, and to use technology, but only use the good parts of technology. Don't let it overwhelm you, and to realize that most of the best travel stories are accidental. Uh, and yet we're so obsessed with with over planning. So one of the ways things this happens is you meet people, right? So it's true. I'm very uncomfortable meeting, going up to strangers and starting conversations. I mean, many of us are. People just don't believe that I am because I, I, I like public speaking. I don't mind, you know, being on a podcast. I don't mind talking to a lot of people. But but those are people who chose to be with me. Right, you know? that's true. Uh, you're listening to this podcast, and if you didn't like it, you, you shut it off already, <laughs> right? Or if I'm speaking somewhere, well, the crowd is supposed to be listening to me. But when it's just you and someone else, I mean, also, this it's, this is true. Like, I don't I never like to, like, approach women in parties or bars or anything. It's very uncomfortable. Um but you have to force yourself to do that, not the women in the bars. But you have to force yourself to talk to <laughs> yeah, strangers. Uh, and so there's a lot of, of ways to do it. The first thing that is the most basic thing is it's very easy when you're from another place. You just ask them a question. Or as we say, I say in the book, smile and ask a question. Um, how do I get from here to there? Forget that you have Google Maps and that you right. already know. Just ask them because maybe there's a better way to go. And maybe they'll be like, oh, where are you from? Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. So that's one thing is just to always be asking questions to people. And it's not like being at a bar and trying to hit on somebody. You don't have to come up with a clever line. You just say, do you know where is a good place to eat around here? Do you know how to get there? How do I get to the subway? Which bus goes to there? Not every time and not even one in four times, but one in ten times, it's going to lead to an interesting conversation. Yeah. So you've got to do it ten times right. to get to that one. Um that's one. Another one is to travel on purpose to places that have fewer tourists. Because right. this is like my number one rule, which I uh, I just am so convinced this is the most important rule about travel, is that people are the people, how kind people are to tourists is inversely related to how many tourists visit their city or their country. And right, so a, true. A place that doesn't get many tourists the people are actually going to be interested in the tourists that come. They're like, what? Where are you from? Why are you here? Why are you here? <laughs> yeah, and 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 they'll actually want to meet you. So I even when I go to a popular tourist place, if it's a city, I try to go to a neighborhood in the city which doesn't get tourists. Uh, a lot of times I'll try to 
get a car and drive out of the city into smaller towns. If I'm going on driving on a highway and I see a little sign that says this town there and I look in the guidebook and there's no mention of the town, I'll probably turn off the highway and go there because it's just like I did that in um, Sardinia once in Italy. And it's just it's almost too easy. You go to a little town that has very few tourists and now all the old men are sitting in the square like stereotypically you would think in an right. Italian village. <laughs> and of course they're like pounce on you almost and they want to talk to you and they want to, you know, give you some of their food or wine or whatever. Um, when you go into the little restaurant there and in the touristy place, they'll be like, oh, here's, another, here's the bilingual menu. Here you go. But there they're like, huh, what are you doing here? Yeah. So that's that's another one. And just one more thing. The third thing is if you're traveling with somebody else, it's especially tempting not to talk to other people. Yeah, Because you sure. have someone to talk to. Right. So I, I always tell people to just create a little peer pressure. Agree that every day each of you is going to talk to five strangers no mm-hmm. matter what. Yeah. And force each other to, to do that. Right. I had this experience where um, I was traveling to Rio. And, of course, I don't speak Portuguese. And um, I was with my family and... I just we just walked into some random important looking building without knowing what it was and wow. there were some like really important meeting things going on of course I had no idea what was going on and then I was this like confused girl and I just talked to some guy who was at the building and he had he looked important he had all these key, keys and he, he didn't keys? he had keys to every single room and he's like he motioned us to like come here come here because i guess i had yeah. i don't know i was like non-threatening looking person i was like confused and just like walked in yeah. he's like come here come here and then he um went and showed us a tour of the whole entire building what was, it was it did you ever find out I, what no it was? i think it was i think now that I think about it, I think it was like a city hall or something. Right, right. But he, and there were all these like press things going on, people were giving speeches, and obviously we're not allowed to be there. But for whatever reason, he looked at me and he's like, just like come in. And he like, you know, uh, showed me all these like different rooms. So, so to this day, I will never forget that experience because it was right. just like some random, very nice person who just to this day, I don't know who he was and where we were, but. <laughs> he was, he was, yeah. Well, let's put it this way. I would guarantee. I would imagine it wasn't a big tourist attraction that people were coming into because he's like, "Oh, cool, someone from somewhere." Yeah, else. I think it was some rent. I think I was. We got lost because right. just like walking around, and I didn't know where I was going. And usually, when I'm traveling with my family, they look at me for everything. And my mom was like, "What is that?" I'm like, "I don't know. I just got here too." Yeah. So I just, I'm well, just lost. Right. <laughs> that's a great story, and, yeah. and that's a sort of story when you ask people for their best travel stories. Yeah, exactly. Just having this exact same conversation yesterday. Mm -hmm. The stories they tell you are never the stories about their perfectly planned day. Absolutely true. It's always when they get lost Mm -hmm. or when something went wrong or or whatever. And so what I'm encouraging people to do in the book and giving them the tools to do Mm -hmm. is to not wait to get lost Mm -hmm. to have that thing happen. Yeah. Make it happen on purpose. Do random things on purpose. How do you do that? Well, I mean, a few of the things, the things I've already said, first Mm -hmm. of all, Um, not to be tied to a schedule, I think is very, very important. A lot of people will map out their day and they'll be like, we have to be here at 10 and there at 12 and at lunch at 1.30 and then blah, 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 blah. And uh, it's just very important when an opportunity comes up, like someone's, can you imagine if you had said, oh no, we have to be at our lunch reservation in <laughs> half an hour. I can't take the greatest tour I'm ever going to have right. in Brazil. You have to be willing to say, okay, screw it. Yeah. I'm not going to do what I had planned to do later. 
That's that's a really really important part, and also to do. Uh, I, I think people should even people who are going to a city where they want to see everything should take it one day of their trip or even yeah. half a day if you're only going to be there for a weekend, and and pick a part of the city and just randomly wander around, and things like that are are really bound to happen. Yeah, and to be open to them, uh, mm-hmm. and then once you're there, of course, then you want to talk to strangers. It, it it all sort of fits together. Yeah, so it's like almost like we have to force ourselves to not plan so much in advance. Yeah, or mm-hmm. if you are willing to give up on your plans, mm-hmm. feel free to plan in advance so you have a backup. Yeah, but but don't be a prisoner to your plan. Mm-hmm. You know, be ready to to do something else. Uh, you know, one of the first stories in the book is me cutting off a highway into a pistachio orchard. Oh, I read about right, that. You read about that. Mm-hmm. So this was in Turkey, and I, I had uh, been in this city called Gaziantep, uh, Antep they call it, and there's another city down like you know an hour's drive away sanli or i'm pronouncing both of those completely wrong uh and i just decided with one day left i'm like i'm gonna get out of this city and gonna go see the other city and like i've heard you really should see the city because it's all these sort of biblical it's a biblical site there and whatever and so i'm just driving on this highway i rented a car for one day turkey i drove on this highway and i realized i'm driving through on both sides of me are pistachio orchards which is cool right i've never been to a pistachio orchard <laughs> and i've been eating like i've been eating like uh, baklava with pistachio for like days so i just cut off follow a sign down a dirt road and go into uh, a village and the third village i arrived at actually it took that long uh someone invited did they saw me and right away invited me over for lunch what yeah like literally <laughs> just instantly. like randomly and they didn't even speak english they just used sign language yeah pretty random well you have to understand my appearance in this village I may have been the first tourist there ever. Wow. Because I just randomly went there. It was like, you know, a 15-minute drive off the main highway, which is not a really touristy part of the country anyway. And they're just like, stranger, you're coming over. <laughs> different countries. Well, that's another thing. Some countries are more have different attitudes towards strangers. Some countries, it's just like part of the culture to, to invite people in. Yeah. And some countries, it's not. So if you go to the countries where there's this tradition towards strangers uh, muslim countries are often mm-hmm. like this um but not only um you know i would say that nordic countries are a little not quite like that yeah but that doesn't mean you can't do it um so but imagine what if i had i'd been like i really need to see this other city well what if i'd been like well screw that idea i'm not going to drive off into the pistachio orchards because if i don't see this city i'm not going to see this famous biblical site I was just like, screw it. <laughs> I'd rather uh, go to lunch. <laughs> I'd rather, well, yeah, I didn't even know it was going to be lunch. <laughs> but the thing that's so funny is when I turned off the highway, mm-hmm. it could have easily been the case that 15 minutes later I got back on the highway. Like it was so low risk to turn off that highway that's right. and drive into those villages because the worst thing that could have happened is I would have arrived half an hour later to my destination. Right. And yet people don't do that. They're like, we have to stay on schedule. We have to see all these things. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is is don't buy into these uh, pre-concocted experiences. Yeah. Like uh, you can sometimes. There's certain things that you couldn't do alone. Uh, sure. You, um, I don't know uh, zip lines and uh, maybe maybe you're really into Italian cooking and you want to take a course in somebody's home, which is all, you're not just going to randomly run into a <laughs> chef and they're going right. to their own. So certain things. Right. But you do mm-hmm. don't. 
do it every day. Like don't mm-hmm. plan activities that seem like something that might happen to you randomly. What mm-hmm. exactly what you're looking for won't happen to you, but something something might happen to you. And people just tend to program everything. Yeah. And certainly you don't want to stay in any hotel or resort where the meals are included. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's a big so, one. In so many parts of the world, even breakfast, mm-hmm. so many hotels in the world, breakfast is included. And, right. you know, it's almost unavoidable in some countries. Mm-hmm. But if it were up to me, I'd stay in a place where breakfast wasn't included because what an interesting time of day to be experiencing a place when people are going to work. That right? is true. And I, when I lived in Lisbon for a month finishing my book because I had never been there before, as nice. I said before. And uh, I... I could. I bought my own breakfast. I bought stuff for. I stayed in an Airbnb and I, I had stuff for breakfast. But then one day I just went out and had coffee and a roll at the little tiny cafe across the street, and it was just really interesting. People were coming in. The, the woman knew everyone by name, uh, and it was people going to work. And then the next day I decided to go back, except I had slept in. Mm-hmm. So then I went there, and it was all these sort of, um, for lack of a better term, like housewives i guess you would say i mean like older women who Mm -hmm. were coming in after i don't know i don't really know but it was a whole other thing so then i my goal became that this woman is going to recognize me and know my order by the time i leave wow so then i went every day yeah and so i went every day and finally she because also i'm telling all these jokes in portuguese (laughs) and she's never laughing finally she's like okay i know this guy i'm gonna have to laugh at his jokes now (laughs) and like i finally got her to crack a few smiles but if i had been in a hotel with breakfast included that would never have happened yeah so it's like when we travel we travels to get out of a normal routine but yet when we go on the trips we plan everything so then we're still you know not really giving us an opportunity to have a new discovery or feeling of surprise and that's well stated mm -hmm. i mean we're stressed out in our daily lives we have this routine every day Mm -hmm. and yet we still want to plan every single second of our of our trips Mm -hmm. and i thought it was so interesting because when you um, wrote for the Frugal Traveler column or any other travel story, it's like you almost had to force yourself to have something to talk about, like a story, right? Yeah. So then you would go out of your way to yeah. do things to like talk to people and do all these things that you yeah. ne- otherwise normally wouldn't do. In a way, this mm-hmm. philosophy that I sort of developed um, comes from... I was forced to do it mm-hmm. because otherwise my stories would have been so boring. Yeah. So I was forced to try to make crazy stories happen. And as a result, I realized that's the best way to travel is to open yourself up to having really odd and interesting experiences. So now, of course, I do that mm-hmm. when I'm traveling f- for pleasure as well. I see. So when you travel, do you usually travel by yourself or do you um, do it with friends? Usually, or? well... First of all, that would depend on my romantic uh, life at the time. Right. right? I, uh, uh, did you? Do you ever travel with romantic partners? I yes, I definitely have. I did uh, as recently as a year ago, mm-hmm. and um, it, it was great. I mean, peop, some people are better, more alike in their travel yeah. than others, and of course, you have to figure out the destination we went to. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, her 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 ancestors were from Verona, Italy, oh. and we were going to Italy, so we had to make a stop in Verona, which in the middle of the winter is not very pleasant. Yeah. But of course, so we went. That was what she wanted to do, and 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 then I had certain things I wanted to do, and mm-hmm. um, I like dessert, 
So oh, she yeah, had to me suffer too. through me nice. having dessert all the time. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's, I think it's, it's a great, it's one of the purposes of travel is to, mm-hmm. to bond with family members or significant others or, or whatever, whatever that is. I also do like traveling with friends. Um, here's a tip for mm-hmm. travelers, uh, how to pick the friends they travel with. Um, go with someone who knows the destination really well. Ah. So like if I were your friend, well, maybe I am your friend. Yes, we're you are. We're just sort of getting to know we're each other. Friends. But yeah, we can say we're friends. <laughs> um, and you were going to Korea mm-hmm. and you said, why don't you come along? Yeah. And I would, what if I didn't want, I like been dreaming about going to Thailand, let's mm-hmm. say. And I've been to Korea. Right. But I, the answer be a is different yes, experience if you, come with you me. should go. Right. Forget about your dream destination. This is your dream situation. That is Somebody right. who speaks the language and knows the country and knows people is going to take you somewhere. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend that tries to go every time he, he likes Brazil. And every time he wants to go to Brazil, he says, Seth, when are you going to Brazil? Because he wants to go with me. <laughs> nice. Which makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, so that's certainly, um, yeah. So traveling with other people, if you're mm-hmm. traveling with the right people to the right places is, mm-hmm. is great. But it's a lot of, there's a lot of compromising, of course. Yeah, of course, especially. I do remember, though, um, one time I took a trip to Milan by myself totally randomly because my sister was, she was working in Germany during the summer. So we had planned this, like, we'll go to like Prague and then I'll spend the week when she had to work. And But she warned me in advance that there was like nothing to do there but i was like oh, i'll figure something out yeah. and i went like in like the five hours the first day i saw everything i was like oh my god i'm gonna like get out of here she's like nobody's stopping you so i was like i'm in europe where would i want to go and then i at the time i hadn't been to milan so i was like i'll go so i literally just bought the plane ticket that day and then i flew out the next day and then it, i to this day i still remember it was like one of my greatest travel memories i was yeah. there by myself i didn't know anybody I obviously didn't speak the language, but I would just like talk to this girl on the train and she invited me to a party and like all these yeah, like crazy see? things. So it's just like by myself. Yeah. yeah. You got invited to a party. Fantastic. Yeah. It was like so random. But anyway. And people think that these things won't <laughs> happen to them. And it, yeah. it's true that some people have a, a more of a talent of attracting uh, friendly people than others. But everyone, you don't need for a successful, great experience, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need to get invited to a party by a, a woman on the Italian <laughs> subway or whatever, and you don't need to spend the day with a Turkish pistachio farmer. Even having little conversations right. or just getting a peek behind the counter at a store or this sort of things, everyone is perfectly capable of, of, of doing this by being really friendly and being yeah. really curious. Uh, and, of course, uh, assuming, this is what I always tell the people who watch my YouTube channel, assume that when you go to another country or another culture you're an idiot yeah and you whatever other people do think twice before you do anything such as attention americans talk really loud in public uh or dress in a certain way like if if look around you everyone is dressed in all men are dressed in pants nobody's wearing shorts well don't wear shorts you right (laughs) right you know and um so do all that and 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 good things will happen yeah and it's so interesting what you learn about when you just like start to talk to people yeah yeah well yeah, talking to sure. people is the best mm-hmm. that's the best kind of of travel um I, another thing i always tell people is favor places where you speak the language mm-hmm. um okay if your dream if you your dream is to go to guadalupe 
French-speaking island in the Caribbean, then go to Guadeloupe. But if you're going just to get away, get some sun over the winter, and your choice is Guadeloupe or Jamaica, and you don't really care, go to Jamaica because there everyone speaks English. So you have a, a much better chance of making friends and getting invited to things and doing something different or even just even if you go to an all-inclusive resort the worst thing you could possibly do at least in jamaica Mm -hmm. you can have conversations with all the staff yeah not just the ones that are trained in tourism to speak english to you right right so So seth what uh, uh, trips do you have planned coming up i leave on wednesday Mm -hmm. uh, to france Mm -hmm. prague and austria Wow. Are you writing stories about Part of it places? is a story. I'm mm-hmm. going to write a story in Prague. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but really, I'm going, this sounds so glamorous. Mm-hmm. I'm going skiing in Austria. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're the frugal traveler. Well, I'm not the <laughs> not frugal anymore. traveler anymore. <laughs> right. uh, and also, this is a personal trip. But mm-hmm. it's actually very, very cheap. I have a, a friend. What? Not a friend. I have a cousin, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to get there. Yeah, right. But... Um, I have a cousin who lives in Prague, mm-hmm. and he every year has a ski trip, and they rent a house, and there's like 20 people, so they divide the cost of the house, so it's actually very cheap, and apparently skiing uh, is much cheaper there than it is in the U.S. if you yeah. have a veil or something like that. So overall, like it's definitely no more expensive than going to Colorado skiing as long as you get a good airfare. Right. And plus, I'm sharing a house with all these people. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing that. That should be really fun. I've never been skiing in Europe before. I really haven't been skiing in like five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Prague. And I'm stopping in Paris along the way. Nice. Just, One just, of my just, favorite just places. A, just to see a friend. <laughs> uh, you know, that's another... I mean, I, I really have to be in Munich to go to, to get to Austria. Mm-hmm. But So I just looked to see if, you know... Is it just as cheap to go to Paris, mm-hmm. stop in Paris, and then fly to Munich? Yes. So then just stop in Paris for a couple of days. Fun. So you've had this really interesting, fascinating life. What is something that you wish you could tell your younger self about life and career? And um, Well, uh, I would say try not to work as hard. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> You think you work too hard? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I work too hard anymore. I, I am a hard worker and I do like my work. Mm-hmm. But there were times when I was working for the city yeah. where I would just work such long hours and nobody else was doing it because it's a government job. So people right. just work nine to five and, you know, and gave up my social life. At, at the time and, mm. I, and I think social life is incredibly important if you're giving up your social life or you're giving up time to do your hobbies or whatever when are you going to meet the per- when are you going to go to the bar with your friend who tells you you used to be a good writer in, oh that in is college? true uh, and then when are you going to take the class that they recommend that you take mm-hmm. um, you have to leave your life first of all it's unhealthy to work really long hours no matter what age you are um, but it's also you're just bound to make your next career move based not on something that happens at work but that happens outside of work that I is think. so true that is so true so this is the question that I ask um, everybody which is our last question okay um, <laughs> nobody really um, achieved dreams alone or succeeds alone so who helped you to get to where you're now um, I think that aside from Sue Shapiro who we discussed <laughs> was the person that took, right. taught my class and got me started um, I think I just have to give it up to my parents. They just created an environment where uh, uh, where we could be 
creative and do whatever we wanted and they made sure we went to good schools and um you know it, it and and took took us traveling yeah and it's not that easy to take fighting i fought a lot with my brother it's not it's kind Something of embarrassing for do. them to mm -hmm. fight in london rather than fighting in <laughs> boston <laughs> for sure, right? uh, but i can't think of anyone that would have been more important th than that yeah um yeah, I had a lot of great teachers, but in part that's because that's my parents made sure we lived in a place that had great public schools. So. Yeah. Well, Seth, thank you so much for being here, sharing all of your adventure stories with my listeners. It has been my yeah, pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And I look forward to following you on your next travel. Everybody, uh, please check out Seth's book, Rediscovering Travel, A Guide to the Globally Curious. I believe books are sold everywhere, right? Yes, yeah. where books are sold. <laughs> thank you, Seth. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. I hope you enjoy the conversation. At the beginning of the show, I told you about my community, Give One Dream, that I built to inspire people to pursue their dreams. If you're interested in learning more about it, you can go to giveonedream.com, that is giveonedream.com, and I'll also have a link on my show notes, so you can just go to your podcast app and check it out. I've also put together a guide to the three steps to finding true career fulfillment, which you can also download it by clicking on today's show notes on your podcast app or my website, selinalee.co, that is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E-E.co. And please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And while you're at it, I would really appreciate it if you can please write me a review. It really helps me to spread the word and get discovered by new listeners. For questions about my coaching or to reach out to me with any thoughts or questions about my podcast, you can also visit my website, selenalee.co, and I look forward to hearing from you. So thank you so much, and I'll be back soon with another episode. I hope you have a great week.